The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. If you want to open your Bibles, we are in John chapter 3 this morning, as Matt just read out. Uh, and, and the passage that we're looking at is sandwiched between two really famous moments in John's Gospel. So in John chapter 3, we have Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, where um, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And that was last week. That's what we looked at last week. And, and then in the coming weeks, we're looking at John 4. These guest speakers, they're going to be looking at John 4, and it's a really famous uh, moment between Jesus and this woman um, at the well, the, the Samaritan woman at the well. And sandwiched between those two famous points in John is this very unfamous passage of John. But as much as it's unfamous, it's wonderful. And part of what makes it wonderful is that line at the very end, which is, he must increase, but I must decrease. And I, uh, I love that verse. I've, I've always cherished that verse. But it's a verse that I think, I think I've always read it with some kind of a misery to it. Not misery, but maybe some kind of like a, a self-deprecating, oh, I must decrease and he must increase, like woe is me kind of thing. And as I've been preparing this week and, and working through this, this passage this week, I've come to realize that sentence, he must increase and I must decrease, is packed with joy. It's, it's kind of like, you know, in, all, in um, the play Oliver Twist, when he comes and asks for more, please, sir, can I have some more? That's kind of what John is saying. He, I want more of Jesus. The general gist of this passage is, is this, that he must increase and I must decrease. If we can get good at anything, if we can get good at praying that prayer, I think we'll find ourselves drinking from the fount of unending and superior joy. So the general gist of this passage is that being correctly orientated to, to Jesus as the earth is to the sun... Is, the, is critical for complete joy. Being orientated to Jesus as the earth is to the sun is critical for complete joy. So let's pray, and then we'll get into it. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for that, that it gives us life, that you speak to us through your word, that the, this is more than just um, ink on a page. It's, it's more than just... Uh, a historical record, Lord, but it is your life-giving word. It is alive and it is sharp and it penetrates to our hearts, Lord. <clears throat> and so, Father, we ask you to cause your word to penetrate into our hearts, Lord. Holy Spirit, give us the ears to hear what you have to say to us. Give us the courage to obey what you call us to do, Father. Amen. In uh, 2009, during the World Athletics Championships in Berlin, uh, a, a man named Asafa Powell of Jamaica, he ran in the men's 100-meter final, uh, and he set a time of 9.84 seconds. That was his time for the 100-meter final, Asafa Powell of Jamaica. Asafa Powell is one of the 169 people in the history of the world who, have, who has ever run the 100-meter sprint in less than 10 seconds. 
Not many people have been able to do it. 169, Asafa Powell is one of them. It was the fastest time that Asafa Powell had set for that year. It wasn't his best time, but it was his fastest time of the year. But it also wasn't the fastest time of the day. His race was eclipsed by a man named Tyson Gay of the, uh, Tyson Gay of the U.S., and he ran the 100-meter sprint at a time of 9.71 seconds. That was Tyson's gay, Tyson Gay's uh, personal best. And he set a record that day. 9.71 seconds is the fastest uh, time that someone from the United States of America has ever run the 100-meter sprint, sprint. He's the fastest man in America, and as far as I know, that hasn't been broken since. However, Tyson Gay's race was eclipsed by, of course, Usain Bolt, who raced as well. Tyson Gay came second to Usain Bolt, who set a world record that day in that same race of 9.58 seconds. He was something like two meters ahead of the next racer. And that, that time, 9.58 seconds, still stands today, 14 years later. Absolutely astonishing speed. Usain Bolt eclipsed my, uh, Tyson Gay. Tyson Gay eclipsed Asafa Powell. John the Baptist was, according to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, the greatest person to have ever lived. And yet in this passage, Jesus himself eclipses John the Baptist. Let's just walk through this passage. The, ver- the first few verses that John gives us, it sets the stage. They're not inconsequential, but it helps us understand the, the scope of what's going on here. Jesus and his disciples, they had been in Jerusalem. Uh, they'd been there for the Passover festival. And now in this, in this section, they had left Jer- Jerusalem and they went out into the Judean countryside and there they were baptizing people. And even though there, and also in ver- verse 26, it kind of looks like uh, Jesus is the one who is doing the baptizing. Like, it kind of sounds like Jesus is the one doing the dunking. John makes it really clear in the next chapter that Jesus never actually did that, uh, that when it says that Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, it was his disciples who were actually baptizing people. They were in the water with the people. Then verse 23, so verse 22 just really quickly just tells us where Jesus was, but then the scene changes straight away to in verse 23 to a place called Anon near Salem, where John the Baptist is baptizing people. And John's ministry had become really quite significant in Israel at that time. Matthew 3 says that people were coming from everywhere, all over Jerusalem, all over Judea, all all the way from Galilee. People were coming from everywhere to come and be baptized by John the Baptist and to confess their sins. It was a baptism of repentance. But it wasn't always like that for John. Once upon a time, John was a bit of a loner. He was a bit of an outcast type of person. He wore um, rough clothing. He, he ate locusts and honey. and He was a bit of an obscure man. He was, he was a bit of an odd man out in the, in the wilderness. But the Holy Spirit started moving in, in him, through him, and his rise from obscurity to infamy was so significant that we read at the beginning of John's Gospel that um, the, the Pharisees who were in Jerusalem at that time sent a delegation of, 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 of Jews out to find John the Baptist and find out exactly who he is. That's when he said, I am not the Messiah. 
I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. I'm, I'm not those people. I'm, I'm the one who comes before Jesus. That's what we read about that in John 1. Uh, he, he, was a, he became a very infamous person, a very famous person. The, the Pharisees, the, the power brokers in Jerusalem, they were losing sleep over him. And, and all of this took place, John says, before uh, John the Gospel writer says, before John the Baptist was thrown into prison. And, and John the Baptist was actually thrown into prison um, not too long after this. And we can read about that in, in Matthew 14, in Mark 9, and in Luke 6, where um, John the Baptist was in prison and then he actually was beheaded at the request of Herodias. Um, for speaking out against his, um, Herod, Herod's relationship with Herodias. In verse 25, then, we're told that a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. Now, now we're not told exactly what is said in this dispute, but it, it had to do with purification. Uh, how someone is made right before God, how someone is cleaned up before they come to God. And it seems that within that dispute... Jesus' disciples found out that Jesus and his followers were also baptizing people in the Jordan River. So John's disciples, they're with John, they're baptizing. It's a famous ministry. People are coming from everywhere. And then they find out that Jesus is also baptizing um, elsewhere. And so they, they, they come to John and they say, everyone is going to him. That's what they say. That it's not just that Jesus was doing it here and there, all these disciples were doing it here and there. Everyone was going to him, as they declare. And it's this declaration, everyone is going to him, that kind of betrays their motive a little bit. It kind of reveals their motivation here. Because we know that not everyone was going to him. There were still people who John was baptizing. There were still people going out to John. It was still true that people were going to John to be baptized. When our ego is hurt, we're more likely to exaggerate the offense against us, aren't we? Like, I mean, I've got three children, and I know for a fact that when one of them is upset with another, with one of their brothers or sisters, they get really upset, and they start exaggerating the story. Like, all I did, I was just patting him on the head. That's all I was doing. And then he kicked me in the shins. Like, <laughs> were you really patting him on the head? Well, it was a kind of a, a hard pat, a forceful pat. I'm like, so you hit him in the head. Well, like, you hit him in the head, that's what happened. Like, we exaggerate the offense against us. This is what John's disciples were doing. Everyone's going to him. No, they weren't. But they were offended. They were upset. You can hear loud and clear, can't you, their, their jealousy that Jesus' ministry had picked up momentum. They hear, oh, Jesus is actually doing this as well, and that's growing now. They, they, look, they look down the barrel of time, they can kind of see that there's going to come a time where, as John's disciples, they're going to be without a ministry anymore if Jesus, keeps, Jesus' ministry keeps growing. They didn't even use Jesus' name. They instead call, call him the one you testified about. In other words, John, you elevated him with your platform, you gave him props. Like, you're the one who talked him up. And now, look, everyone's going to him. He's stealing your thunder. He's taking your limelight. This is your ministry, John. And although they seem concerned for John's feelings here, my experience with my own 
with a deception of my own heart, tells me that they were actually really concerned with how they felt about this. They could see John's fame slipping between their fingers, and now they are gripping tight. I wonder if they were thinking, like, did we back the wrong horse? A couple of John's disciples had actually gone off with Jesus earlier on in John's gospel. Like, maybe we should have gone with them. People were coming to us from everywhere. We, we had the Pharisees in Jerusalem losing sleep over us. And now this Jesus guy and his group, his ministry, that group over there, they're stealing our thunder. Every person will one day be eclipsed. Like, I don't know if you ever think of things like this, but there will come a day where nobody will ever know your name. There will come a day in, it might be 50 years, 100 years, something like that, but there will come a day where nobody will know your name. There will come a day where everybody will be eclipsed. There will come a day where world records, the world records of Usain Bolt will be a thing of the past. When names like LeBron James or Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan, those names will only exist in the shadow of another. And even us in our fields, there will come a day where we will be eclipsed by someone else. Someone will will come along and they will outdo us in everything. They'll make what, what we worked hard at, they'll make it look easy. They'll make us feel like, like something will happen and it will feel like they've exposed a chink in our armor. It's when something that gives us meaning and identity and purpose is threatened. See, the feeling that you're important, that you've, you've got, you can get meaning from something, that's incredibly intoxicating. It's an intoxicating motivator. It can, it can give us identity. It can give us meaning. And this is an example of what the Bible calls idolatry. It's seeking after something that isn't God for your base and central meaning in life. It's looking at something that isn't God and thinking, if only I had that, then I would be happy. Then I would have significance. Then I would be someone. Then I'd be important. And that is actually at the very core of our sin. An idol is a good thing that we have turned into a crucial thing for us, more crucial to us than God. It begins by giving us meaning and purpose. It's a good thing. It often comes to us as a very righteous thing sometimes, but it will eventually require everything of us, and it will leave us with nothing. It will come promising everything. If you have this, you'll be happy. once you get this, you'll be happy. You'll never need anything else after that but it will take everything and leave us with nothing. This is what is happening in the hearts of John's disciples. They were part of something that was really good. It was a really good thing, but now that good thing was under threat. Their their idolatry is revealed. And they were beginning to get to the point that they couldn't enjoy the growth of God's kingdom. They couldn't see God, they they couldn't stand to see God at work unless it was happening at their hands, unless it was their ministry. They couldn't get excited about the ministry down the road because, unless it was happening with them. They couldn't rejoice because more people were being baptized. They wanted to be the ones doing it. This, it meant more to them. It, their identity meant more to them than God's kingdom. And the thing about idolatry like this is that it, it appeals to us 
But then it imprisons us. And it tortures us. And ultimately it destroys us. Idolatry is bondage and slavery. So the growth of John's ministry, the growth of this baptism movement, it appealed to them, it lured them in. But, but then they were trapped into thinking that the growth was an extension and even a result of their own ingenuity, of their own um, cleverness. Like This ministry gave them meaning, and now they were being tortured by the fact that someone else was now enjoying what they treasured most. And what they faced was destruction, if this was ever taken away from them. And friends, an idol will do this to us every single time. Every single time. Something will come along and it'll, it'll appeal to our sense of what is good. It lures us. And we get trapped into thinking that having that thing will, will give us meaning. Having that thing will, will give us a more robust and desirable identity. And we'll become imprisoned in the thought that without it we're nothing. We're tortured by the prospect of losing that thing. And we'll do everything to hold on to it. We'll destroy the relationships around us if only we can have it. And ultimately, it destroys our true identity as a child of God. And an idol can be absolutely anything. It could be earning more money that you think, what I need, if, 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 if only I had some more money, then, like if I had a better income or a, a job that gave me a, a, a better income, then I'd be happy, then I'd have meaning, then I could have the stuff that I want and I would have purpose. Or it might be a certain kind of lifestyle that you, you, you need to live a certain kind of lifestyle and if, unless you're living that st- lifestyle, you feel like you're failing at, at life. And it doesn't just need to be that lifestyle, but that also needs to be put on all the social media things and people need to applaud you because you need that kind of validation. Or it might be in getting married that you feel like you're nothing unless you are married, unless you have a life partner, you're nothing. Or it could be that you, you, you need your kids to be just absolutely uh, like just like kicking goals at life. And so you kind of live vicariously through your kids. You get way too involved in making sure that, that they're doing really, really great because it actually says something about you. It could be a certain, having a certain social status. It could be having a certain shaped body that you, you punish and you, you push your body to the absolute extremes in order to, to get the right size body or the right whatever it is because you believe that without that, you're nothing. And because literally anything can become more crucial to us than God, literally anything can become an idol. What these guys were facing was ministry idolatry. They were facing what we're doing for God stopped being a thing for God and started being a thing for them. And you can feed any good thing into the idol idol factory of your heart and you'll be turned into a worshipper. You'll be worshipping a a false God, worshipping, you're giving your life over, serving and ultimately submitting to something that will destroy you. Let me give you a personal example of this. And I've shared this story before, so some of you will know that. But the biggest fight that Kirsty and I ever had was on the night of the 7th of June, 2012. And the only reason why I know that is because I, this week, went back and looked in the calendar and when it was, and not that I recorded this. The biggest fight we ever had, it wasn't anything like that. But I know it came the night before a major Bible college exam. See, our daughter, Noah, she was nine months old. And um, she was right in the thick of growing teeth. 
and that you know she she was really busy with that she was really angry about that and she was angry at the world because she was growing teeth and so um she's growing these teeth and i'd been studying um i've been i started going to bible college and i was um that we had a, a big new testament exam on i guess it was the next day after that so the the 8th of june yeah 8th of june um and i was stressed i was stressed because i I was really worried about that exam, but, but not just because it was going to be difficult, but really actually because deep in my heart there was an idol problem. See, I believed that if I got straight A's, and I'd already received an A for a previous piece of assessment, so now I had to keep it up, I believed that if I got straight A's, then that would say something about me. And I imagined all the people who I wanted to find out that I got straight A's. And I imagined what they would think about me and what they would say about me. And I got so excited about that. So I, need, I had to get straight A's because I had to feed that idol. I had to get that. And so I was stressed about this. Noah was angry at the world for, because she had to grow some teeth. And Kirsty was doing her absolute best to shield me from a crying daughter um, the night before this exam. And it was 2 a.m., and I was stressed out of my mind. Noah had been screaming for hours. And I got, I got really angry because what Kirsty was doing was she was, trying to, she was trying to take Noah to the other side of the house so I could just sleep and, and just be ready for the exam. And I was like, no, no, no. I'm not going to sleep because I'm so stressed about this whole thing. I'll stay up and you go to bed. And Kirsty wouldn't have that. She was going to stay up and I was going to go to bed. And no, nobody was sleeping. So I was yelling. Kirsty was yelling. Noah was screaming. And at one stage, um, Kirsty, just to like emphasize her, her, her just anger at me, she opened a cupboard door and slammed it. Just to be like, I just, she's like, ah, we're just screaming at each other. And eventually she won. I went to bed and lay in bed for a few hours, just staring at the ceiling, just like massive anxiety and stress. That's what an idol does to us. It starts off as a really good thing. Oh, like, I'll, I'll try really hard at Bible college. I'll, I'll try and get straight A's. And then we, we, get, we get lured by that, right? But then we get trapped into thinking that I'm nothing unless I get that. And then we're tortured when we're at the prospect of losing that and we, it starts to destroy our lives for, for the sake of having that thing. And by God's grace, when I laid in bed that night, I, I turned over, I thought I'd read for a while and I picked up a book, whatever book was by my bedside, and it was um, Tim, Keller, Tim, Keller, Tim Keller's book, uh, Counterfeit Gods, which if, you, if you've never read that book, I strongly recommend it. Just an ironic, hilarious joke of God um, to pick up a book about idolatry um, right next to my bed at that time. Here's the thing. Jesus comes to liberate us from our, our idolatry. He has come to free us from that slavery, to free us from being trapped and tortured and destroyed by our own stupid idolatry. And we see this demonstrated in the words of John the Baptist in verse 27. He says, No one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. John is saying, No one can claim original ownership or full credit for anything that they have in this life. Everything has come from God. Nothing that we boast about is a result of, solely of our own ingenuity or our hard work or our sacrifice. 
It has its roots and foundation in the God of heaven. And if it weren't for him giving us that gift, giving us that thing, uh, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have that career or that family or that body or whatever. And we, what we need to see is just how liberating this is. Like If what you have is actually something that you've received from God, then it's a gift from God for that time, and the pressure is off to try and keep it. It's, it the pressure is off to try and earn it or keep it. You, can't, you, you can enjoy it now because you never actually earned it. It was given to you by God, and if you lose it, it's at his discretion. And when you know this, you can't be imprisoned in the thoughts that make it all about you because it doesn't have its origin in you. It has its origins in God. Everything has, that we've received has, been, come, has come from heaven. You can't be tortured by the strain of maintaining and keeping that thing or the thoughts that you might lose it because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. See, if every, if everything is a gift from God above. We don't have to try... Everything that we experience, right? everything that we've received is a gift from God above. We don't have to try our hardest to try and to, to keep it as if it means something to us. It's a gift from God. I can draw a fairly direct line between my own anxiety and the stress and the worry that I have experienced in the past. I can draw a direct line from that to the thought and the belief that ministry is saying something about me than it, it's saying more about me than it should. I can draw a line from my anxiety to the belief that if this church goes well, then that says something good about me. Like if I'm believing that as long as the church is successful, this church that we planted, as long as it's growing and missionaries are being sent out and the giving's up and all that kind of stuff, then, then, then I must be okay. Then God must love me. Then, then, all, then, then I'm okay. And when I've got that belief, when I'm, when I'm thinking that, I am not sleeping well, I am not eating well, and everything is a threat. But I can also draw a line from the peace and the joy and the thrill of ministry to the belief that this church is built upon his shoulders. And when Paul wrote, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God's the one who actually does this. This is actually on his shoulders. And whether it rises or falls, it's at his will. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When I know that I sleep well, I eat well, I relax, and I'm not threatened by things that can potentially come along and, and hurt. It's a gift from God. What have you claimed? Like, what is important in your life? What achievement are you most proud of? Is it your career? Like Maybe you've worked really hard and you, you've taken the right opportunities. Praise God. But that career doesn't say anything about you. It doesn't say anything about you. Even though you've worked hard, that has come to you from heaven. Maybe you've worked hard at being just the best parent. You've read the right books. You've sacrificed. You've done everything you can. And, and you're kind of filled with pride sometimes because you go to the party and you see all the other kids acting now, but your kids are acting like little angels that day. And you're like, look at me, how good I am. Oh man, I'm awesome. I should write a book about this. Praise God. But that's not about you. 
That's a gift from God. Maybe you've worked really hard at the gym and your health and your body is something you feel really proud about. Praise God, but that is a gift from Him. See, what John is saying here on a human level, if a man, he's talking about, if we're thinking about Jesus, if, a, if another man is displaying gifts superior to mine and having greater success than I am, it is because God has given those to him. John's bulletproof. Here's another man's ministry growing and flourishing. People going to him, people are leaving him, people leaving John the Baptist and going out to Jesus. And John's going, well, if God's given that to them, that's God's business. John's bulletproof. He, he can't be taken down by that. You see, the only way that we can be freed from our idolatry is not to try harder to not have that as an idol. Like it's no good trying to turn off the idolatry switch because we are worshippers. That's why God created us. We will worship something all the time. What we need to do is get our eyes and our satisfaction and our identity and our meaning on something that is superior to whatever it is that we have been worshipping. And John says this in verse 28. He says, you yourself, he, he points to that, that which is superior. He says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah but I've been sent ahead of him. He's referring to earlier in John's Gospel when he said this, and he's like, guys, you heard me say that, right? Like, you, guys can, you guys can testify. I'm the one who said, I am not the Messiah. And these are some of the most liberating words that you can say. There is a God, and I'm not him. There is a Messiah, and I'm not him. I wonder how, how much easier it would be for us to overcome our anxiety and our stress and our turmoil if we would simply put those words on repeat in our hearts. There is a God and I'm not Him. See, when you're in the center of the universe, there is an awful lot of pressure on you. There is pressure to justify why you're there and there's pressure on you to keep yourself there. And it's too much for us. That will absolutely crush us. When Jesus comes along to take the throne of our hearts, it is liberating. It means we no longer have to perform to try and get ourselves to the center of the universe. It means we no longer have to perform to try and keep ourselves in the center of the universe. We don't have to try and measure up because we've been accepted by God through Jesus Christ. We, we, nothing is more wonderful than the grace that we have from Jesus Christ. God has accepted us because of what Jesus Christ has done. We don't have to prove anything to anybody anymore. Because really our attempts at, at making ourselves the center of the universe, those are attempts at just trying to justify ourselves. Like if I, if I can have all of these things, then people will look at me and they'll think I'm great and then I will be justified. I will be right. I will feel like I've actually done something with my life. I feel like I've got meaning and purpose and identity. I feel like I'm someone important. The pressure is off. If you're a Christian, the pressure is off to try and earn that because you've received that. From Jesus Christ. You, don't, you can't earn that. John knew that he was not the Messiah and he was crystal clear about what his role was. My job was to be sent ahead of him, he says. I've played my part. Friends, when we let Jesus be the Messiah, it gives us supreme clarity of our own identity and supreme liberty to enjoy whatever it is that God has given us and not to lose sleep over what we've lost. And then John the Baptist gives this really rich illustration for this reality, this reality of his, that he knows that he is not the center, that Jesus is the center for him. He says in verse 29, He who has the bride is the groom, 
But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. In Jewish culture, uh, the, the best man at a wedding was this person known, uh, this title called the Shoshben, S-H-O-S-H-B-E-N, the Shoshben. And it was a really important role in the wedding, and he had to do far more than what uh, best men of today have to do. Like if you're a best man at a wedding um, recently, most likely you had to, you probably had to play in the box party, you had to make sure you bought the rings, and you have to do a speech. And that's about it. There's not really much more you have to do than, than that. But in that day, the Shoshben was a very, a very involved person. He was involved in organizing actually a lot of the, the actual wedding. And he functioned as a bit of a liaison between the groom and the bride. It was, it was the Shoshben's job to go and take out the invitations to, to the people. So, I mean, if you've ever organized a wedding, if you've... Uh, can you imagine having a Shoshben? Like just someone who's like, I'll take the invitation, I'll sort the invitations out, like, I'll sort that stuff out. So right, right from the very beginning, he took out the invitations, he presided over the wedding, he, he made sure everything went according to plan, and he brought the bride and groom together. And then there was this one final extra special job that he had. When the time would come for the bride and groom to come together physically and intimately to, to share the marriage bed together, the bride would go into the bridal chamber and she would await her groom there. And the Shoshben would wait outside and guard the chamber to make sure no false lover entered. And when the groom arrived, the Shoshben would hear the groom's voice in the dark and he would be filled with gladness. He would let his friend in and he would go away rejoicing. His special job was complete and now the bride and groom could enjoy one another. John's saying, I'm the Shoshben. My job was to go ahead of the groom, but I'm not the groom. This is about him. This is all about him. And my, my joy is tied up in the groom's joy as he rejoices over his bride. And now that Jesus is here, now that the ancient, eternal, heavenly groom has arrived to secure his bride, I know that my job is done. John the Baptist hears about Jesus' ministry. He's baptizing, he's doing what he's doing, and his, he says, my joy is now complete. This joy of mine is complete. The eternal groom has arrived, and he has, his joy is, joy is now complete. This is not the first time in John's Gospel that weddings and joy have been brought together to illustrate the fact that joy is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus has the most joy. Jesus has the best joy. You see, John the Baptist doesn't say, oh, I'm so glad that he's here. I'm happy he's here. He says something a lot stronger. He says, this joy of mine is complete. Like, this is bulletproof joy. This is nothing can, uh, nothing can outshine this joy. Nothing can, 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 can overcome this joy. This is the measure and promise of joy that is found in Christ. It's complete. Like, it's, it, it's finished. Like, he's found the, the end of joy, so to speak. He, it cannot be eclipsed by another. It is bulletproof and everlasting joy. That's why John can say, this joy of mine is complete. He's, he's almost saying, I can die now, a happy man. I, I've, I've done, I'm done what I'm meant to do. 
And he would die soon after. He would lose his head just a few months later. As Christians, the greatest hope for complete joy that we have is when Jesus is at the centre of our universe. And this is somewhat hard for us to get, around, get our heads around. In a culture that totally affirms our heart's desire to be number one, to be thought of by everybody else without having to think of anybody else, to have the rest of the world orbit around us, to be the centre of the universe. And we know this is in our hearts as we drive and people aren't getting out of our way. We know this is in our hearts when the person in front of us at the, at the, at the checkout is taking too long. We start to get angry, like, come on, get, don't you know how important I am? We know this is in our hearts when we're having an argument with someone and it might be a long-standing argument with that, that same person for a long time and all we want is for them to see things from our perspective. That's when it's in, we know that we're in, in the center of the universe, when we can't believe that somebody would treat us that way because we, they, they, don't they know how important we are? Don't they know that we are at the center of the universe? But putting yourself first and central is the surest way to experience misery in this life. Putting Jesus first is the surest way to experience complete joy. Why is that? Why is Jesus the surest way to experience joy? Well, there's a number of things to that, but I want to draw out what this text leaves us with. In Jesus is unbelievable dignity for us. Unbelievable dignity for us. Like in Jesus, we are really important. You are really important to Jesus. Did you notice when John said, he who has the bride is the groom? Now that, that sentence stuck in my mind all week because it's a weird, thing, a weird way to say that. Like you could have just said, there's the groom and I'm the shoshben. But he, does, he said, he who has the bride is the groom. And that word has is really emphatic in that sentence. It comes first. It's the first word in that sentence. He who has the bride is the groom. He who has the bride. The emphasis is on the fact that the groom has the bride. She is his pride. She is his prize. She is his glory. She is his, she is his joy. Like if you've ever... You know, one of my favorite things when you go to a wedding is when the, when the bride walks up the aisle and everyone stops and they look down the aisle and it's glory and it's wonderful and amazing. And then what do we do? Where do we look after that? Where do we steal glances? The groom's face, don't we? We watch the bride and then we all watch her coming up and then you look up and you look at the groom's face. Why? Because he's wearing glory all over his face. He's standing there and he is blown away that someone so beautiful is walking towards him right now to be his. We did Luke and Rachel's wedding just a few um, months ago. We couldn't help but look at Luke's face when Rachel was walking up. And she was, she was a picture of glory. She was a picture of beauty. And then you look at... I'm, gonna, I'm totally embarrassing you right now. I'm sorry, mate. <laughs> but I looked over, at, looked over at Luke, and there was nothing small about Luke, okay? We all know that. But his, his, his grin, his smile was bigger than his face. He was just like beaming like... He was wearing glory all over his face as he saw his bride, his, his, his glory coming towards him. He wears joy in his face. If John is the Shoshben and Jesus is the groom, who's the bride? It's us. 
We are his bride. We are his bride. We are the bride of Christ. And this is how the church has always understood herself, the one who is wedded to the Son of Man. Paul affirms this later on in his writings. John says the same thing in Revelation as well. We are the bride of Christ. We are the ones who Jesus looks at with glory all over his face. Something that I, and I've been thinking about whether or not I should do this, I think I need to confess this, this week. When I stand up here and preach, I often err on the side of leaning into the fact that we are sinners, desperate, wretched sinners, who deserve nothing more than the eternal just judgment of God. And, and that is absolutely true. I'm not, I'm not going back on anything like that. Part of the reason why I lean into that so much is because we live in a beautiful part of the world that you can easily forget that. You can easily forget that this world is not about us. You can easily just be lulled into a false sense that oh, everything must be wonderful. The other reason why I think now that I haven't really, that I err on that is because I haven't really gotten this as much as I think this text has taught me this this week. It is absolutely true that we are wretched sinners, deserving of nothing less than the eternal wrath of God. But equally true is the fact that we are the beloved of Christ. We are his bride. We have value and importance and worth and dignity because we are his bride. We, because we are wedded to the glorious Son of Man. We are prized by the Son of God. Like, do you think of yourself as someone who is loved by Jesus that much? Like, we are loved by Jesus more than Luke loves Rachel. There is glory. There is glory on the face of Jesus as he stares at us, his beloved. That's his love for us. There's a story, an ancient story, about King Cyrus of Persia. Um, King Cyrus, this is the same Cyrus around the, kind of the time of Daniel. And um, I actually heard this story a few weeks ago. I can't remember where I heard it, but then I read it again last night, and I felt like it had to be said here. King Cyrus of Persia. One day a woman in King Cyrus's uh, kingdom was charged with treason and after her trial she was sentenced to death and at first her husband didn't hear about it he didn't realize what had taken place but as soon as he knew the full extent of what was going on he he ran to the palace he burst into the throne room and he threw himself at the floor on the floor at the mercy of king cyrus and begged please take my life instead of hers let me let me die in her place King Cyrus was a fairly kind and humane man, and he was so touched by this offer that he said, love like that should never be spoiled by death. And he let them both go away freely. As they walked away, the husband said to his wife, did you see how kindly the king looked upon us when he gave us our freedom? The wife replied, I was not looking at the king." I only had eyes for the man who was willing to die in my place. Friends, can you see how much you mean to Jesus? 
Can you see how important you are to him? Can you see how much value and worth and dignity that you have in Jesus? You'll never be valued more highly by anyone else than what you are in Jesus. No one in the history of your life will ever place as high a value upon your life than what you get from Jesus Christ. He is the perfect God of the universe, purchasing our freedom from sin at the highest personal cost in order to save us, in order to have us. He died for us. He died to have us. It is true that we are wretched sinners deserving of the wrath of God, but it is also true that God sent his son to die for us, wretched sinners, because he cares about us, because he loves us, because he wants us. God treasures you. The joy of the gospel, amongst many other things, comes from knowing that and putting that deep down inside of our hearts and, and feasting from that, breathing through it and meditating upon that day in, day out, allowing the, God, the, the love of God to set the tone for your entire life. So when John says... He must increase and I must decrease. That is no miserable sentence. That is the expressed desire for Jesus to occupy more of the center of his life and it is also the expressed desire for more joy. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have Jesus at the center of your life and not have joy. If you want Jesus at the center of your life, you're also asking for complete joy. So ask for him, ask him to be in the center of the universe and enjoy him. Enjoy his love. John is saying, in him is joy, in me is not. So less of me and more of him, please. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Center Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC. 